Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector, and I'll be your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. It's really simple. In each episode, a different guest comes on, asks me three questions. We have a five-minute conversation about each of them, and that's it. We get right to the point. Hopefully, you get some actionable, useful tips that you can use. That's what typically happens in these episodes, but today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Today, we're going to flip the script. Instead of bringing a guest on to ask me questions, I'm bringing on a special guest whose expertise I admire and I want to learn from. So I'm going to be asking her the three questions. And that guest today is Amanda Natividad. Amanda is a creator and marketer who helps people do better organic marketing. She's currently VP of marketing for SparkToro, the maker of audience research tools. She also teaches a content marketing course called Content Marketing 201, and she writes a twice-monthly creative newsletter called The Menu. But marketing is actually her third career. She was previously a test kitchen cook and tech journalist, and you can find her on Twitter at Amanda Nat, which is where I first met her, and we feel like we know each other, even though this is the first time we've actually talked. So with that in mind, hey, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Josh. I am really excited to have you here in particular, not only because I don't have to answer questions this time, but I get to learn a bunch from you. So this is, the, I have a hunch these may become my favorite episodes, or at least the ones in which I will, will learn a lot. I thought to start off, again, in part because the way that I came across you and vice versa is on Twitter, and I think you do an amazing job with Twitter and highly recommend everybody follow you. The first thing I want to know is how do you approach Twitter day to day? How do you use it? How do you think about it? How do you write? Do you write tweets? Do you schedule tweets? Do you use lists? Both as sort of a creator and a consumer. Just kind of take me through your process. Yeah. So when Twitter first launched right back in what, 2008, maybe? Mm -hmm. They build themselves as a microblogging service. And I don't know if they still use that messaging, but that's still how I, that's how I use Twitter today. I treat it like a microblog. And so by that, I mean that I try to focus as much as I reasonably can on high signal to noise. And so I'll try to think of, you know, one key thought or tweet per day. And then if I think of something else throughout the day, I might tweet that too, as long as I think it's valuable, valuable in some way, whether it's informative, novel, or entertaining. So I very much try to focus on that. And in, in that focus of high signal to noise, I, I would say that I probably do spend a lot of time thinking about each tweet. And a lot of time is subjective, right? Before I tweet something, I might think about it twice. I might spend an extra maybe 10 minutes, right, just refining, refining the thought, making sure it's an active voice or making sure it's easy to understand. My favorite thing to do or one of my one of the best tips that I have kind of or one of the best tips that I would recommend is, you know, drafting out the thought or the tweet that you have, saving it, like, you know, leaving it in drafts for a couple hours, it's just enough time for you to kind of forget about it and then come <laughs> back to it with a fresh pair of eyes so that you can so that you can better lean into the feelings of, does this reflexively make sense? Would somebody stop scrolling when they see this? Would they engage with it? And then trying to revise and, and then tweet from there. Mm -hmm. 
how do you think about a couple questions based on that? So how do you think about value and your audience and who you're sort of tweeting? I, I assume you do. I assume you think about, I'm trying to help these specific people in this specific way. How do you think about who that is? Yeah. So I, so I will look at who my audience is. Like I can see, I use follower wonk occasionally to see, so that I can see um who follows me in terms of like, I can search people. Well, let me back up for a second. Follower wonk will allow you to analyze your Twitter followers. So I'll do that. I'll pull a report and then I can see in a spreadsheet, essentially what people's bios are. So then, I mean, I don't read the whole list, mm-hmm. but right. that gives me a sense of, you know, how many people follow me who are founders or marketers or marketing directors or, you know, whatever that that might be. So that does help. And then I also, you know, I'll look at, I might even analyze my own audience in SparkToro to see, mm-hmm. to, to get the audience research of the people who follow me. So then from there, I'll see some of the top words used in their bios. I'll see um, some of the some of the topics that they, or some of the topics or words that they use often publicly online. And that kind of gives me a sense of what my audience is thinking about. So at this point, I'm pretty confident that my audience is made up of some combination of creators, marketers, and founders. And so when I think about it that way, then that's when the type of, the, the type of content I create can expand beyond just content marketing or just marketing, then I'm thinking about, okay, well, what is a busy founder or entrepreneur thinking about? They might not be thinking about content marketing, but they might be thinking about growth marketing. They might be thinking about, you know, focusing on high impact tasks, right? It could be Mm -hmm. productivity related. So that's kind of just how I see it, right? So then, so then then my content is, it kind of runs the gamut from marketing to productivity and then kind of sprinkled in there, right? The human side of things, like the the things that are that I find amusing in my own personal day-to-day. Um, mm. And I think, you know, as a whole, I, my, my hope is that my feed ends up becoming informative, interesting, occasionally funny, I hope. And then right. also <laughs> that it's not too much, right? It's not like, mm-hmm. I, per, I mean, you know, I think I think there are a lot of different opinions on this. And I'm sure a lot of people would say, like, no, you should tweet several times per day. And that's great. I mean, if that works for you and mm-hmm. you like it and you're getting good results and by all means, you should do that. But I just try to, I don't, I don't think I have enough to say that I can mm-hmm. tweet several times per day. So I try to focus on one. If I think of more, then there'll be right. more. <laughs> so you might tweet more. You, you, I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's, there, or at least it seems to me like there's days that you tweet more than once, but you're yeah. really focused on sort of, I want one good tweet or thread a day. And are you doing those pretty much in real time? I know you said you sort of, I'm assuming you have drafts and sort of notes, but you're not really scheduling. Are you sort of, and I guess two-part question. So one, are you doing it sort of like, you don't know what you're going to tweet tomorrow until tomorrow comes. And then my other question is, are you always doing it at the same time of day? Or is it just whenever you happen to feel like it that day? Yeah, so I I probably, I actually do schedule my tweets. I might schedule it the day before. But I schedule it at a time frame in which I know that I will also be around to engage mm-hmm. in any comments. So usually, you know, I'll tweet, I'll, I'll schedule the tweet for around 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Pacific time because based on the data of my 
of my engagement. I know that those tend to be high engagement times for me personally. So I'll schedule the tweet then. And then, you know, when it goes up, then I'll check on my phone. And this is when I'm like making breakfast, right? So I'm making breakfast, mm-hmm. making coffee, and then kind of scrolling through my own feed and engaging with the comments. So that's how I approach that. I will say I do try to have a balance of kind of evergreen tweets and tweets that are a little bit more timely. Mm-hmm. And the timely ones, you know, that kind of just has to happen the day of or the or the following. Right. Day. And the evergreen stuff, those are things that I'll have like an Evernote file or Evernote notebook where I just kind of plop in evergreen thoughts. And then those are just sort of my my backup content, so to speak, where you know, that can go up anytime. Maybe I'll put that, maybe I'll post one of those like on a Monday when I don't know, when I don't, when I don't have anything timely to say, but Mm -hmm. that I think is still useful. And so, and then, you know, for those evergreen tweets, then I kind of, one mindset that I have to, to, for those are, is what can I say that would be useful to a version of me last year Mm -hmm. or two years ago? Yep. Do you, repost repurpose tweets ever and do you once you've posted stuff obviously i assume you're looking at seeing how and sort of just intuitively figuring out oh this worked or this didn't work or whatever is there any kind of formal system you have around that are you actually tracking like stuff that worked and i want to repost this at some point how are you sort of post post posting how do you think about that sort of analysis piece yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could be more regimented, uh, right. you know, about it, but uh, it's pretty rudimentary. I'll I'll do a search of my own tweets based on number of engagements. So I'll look for my own tweets that got a minimum of like 50 likes. And I'll look at ones from like last year, like maybe this time mm-hmm. ago last year or at least three months ago. And then from there, if there's anything interesting that, you know, or that got high engagement, mm-hmm. I'll look to repurpose it. And when I repurpose it, I will look back at the tweet. I'll kind of ask myself, like, do I still believe in this? Do I still think this? Well, what would I change about this statement? And then sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll look at the comments back then and I'll see, you know, if I got any pushback or, or any add-on advice or, you know, anything additive to that conversation. And I think the pushback is helpful, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then that'll help me rethink like, oh, should I have, maybe I shouldn't have phrased it that way to begin with. Like maybe that was, Maybe I was being too presumptuous and saying something so in a, in such an absolute way. Like what what how, how can I revise this? So then from there I'll I'll edit it into a version that I think is better or that the current me would agree with, and then I'll post okay. that. Cool. I just want to point out, and it's so I'm not surprised to hear this from you. Again, we've never talked about how you use Twitter, but just for listeners, you know. Anyone that's successful on Twitter is way more strategic about it than I think the average person realizes, right? You clearly have thought about this. You're Even if you're not going off the deep end, spending a million hours, whatever, you've looked at the research, you've looked at the bios, like you clearly, there's a strategy behind it, which again, everyone's strategy may be different, but I think that to me, something I found is that anyone that's sort of having success there is at least attempting to be strategic in how they use it. Before we move on to the next topic, I'm going to throw one more Twitter-related question at you. Is there any sort of quick tip or something you feel like maybe you do that isn't the sort of common wisdom that a million people are saying to do that you have found successful on Twitter that you could say, hey, you know, here's the thing I do. I don't, you know, that's not necessarily what you've heard a million times, but has worked for me. Anything come to mind? Let me think for a sec. I love this question. 
Yeah, I don't mean to put, I don't mean yeah. to put you on the spot, but uh, yeah. you know, I assume like just little things. It might be a type of tweet. It might be, uh, you know, I don't want to answer for you, but I know that I've seen you. I think multiple times, sort of point out when people are sharing, you know, the standard tactic of like, oh, follow these experts, and they're all men. Or they're 10 men and one woman. And I know you have sort of had some success sort of saying, hey, wait a minute. Like, what about all these other people? So I'm not saying that's it, but I know that's something that popped. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that is and that's what I was trying to think about. Like, how do I articulate this better? Because the way I see it is figuring out some combination of calling something out without calling something out. And figuring out how to punch up instead of punching down. Mm-hmm. So like when so when you like when you call something out or when you clap back at someone or at something, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a I think it's less about saying, Hey, you didn't include women, how dare you? Mm-hmm. I think it's finding a way to either I guess you could do it in two ways. One is kind of taking the benefit of the doubt route where maybe you don't know someone and then maybe they don't have this strange repeat behavior of or a repeat offensive behavior. And then you can say something like, oh, here are some other really cool people to follow. And then you add right. on with like all women or, or whatever well, that what, is. Yeah. That's what I liked about it. And I think sort of if you extrapolate beyond just the sort of men, women piece of that specific example, you know, you're taking the prompts to create something generous and value, not just taking the prompt to get in a pissing match with something. Like, or you said to clap back on it, right? Which I think is what a lot of people would do, right? If you think about it, anything that you find, I don't mean you, but anybody finds frustrating, wrong, whatever, the temptation is just, I'm going to fire back at them and point it out and get into them, as opposed to saying, well, maybe there's a prompt that I can create something positive and in your case shine a light on these other people or whatever helpful versus just pointing it out which may be sort of helpful but only does so much right so maybe right. That's sort of the bigger piece yeah and it I, went in a different direction right and I, and I think like like yeah I think that kind of I think any kind of offensive or whatever behavior deserves to be called out but I think there are many ways to do it I don't think the only mm-hmm. way to do it is to is to say hey you messed up or like you know, right. you're sexist or or whatever that might be. I think a way to call it out is to just amplify the good that you want to see or to celebrate the good that you want to see. The other way I could I would approach this and I, and I wish more people would do is essentially be the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Like if you see a thread or a tweet that pops off that you don't like, that you like fundamentally it pisses you off, then use that and make your own content. And then- right. Women, right, 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 Right. exactly. And also, again, like it's it's providing value. Like what you did there, not only provides value to the women that you featured and recommended, it also provides value to your audience because you've just introduced them to a lot of great people to follow, regardless of men or women, right? So you didn't just right, you did just sort of point it out. You created a whole other set of value. Cool. So let's let's move on. I have. the next question, the next thing, I it's it seems like part of your job at SparkToro is to explain a relatively new service to people in a way they can understand it and see the value. 
I think this is something that a lot of, a challenge a lot of people face in all sorts of ways, especially when it comes to marketing. So I want to know in general, what are your best tips for people who need to explain things to an audience that maybe are a little complicated through content or marketing? Yeah. So content and, or I think a lot of top funnel content. So traditional content marketing or modern content marketing, like podcasts, right? Um, mm -hmm. And PR efforts, events, right? All the top of funnel stuff. Those are all really, really good opportunities to essentially normalize the conversation around the obscure product or service that you sell. So in our case, you know, we sell or create audience research tools, right? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think audience research is something, well, it's something that it's something that not a lot of people are searching for just yet. I think mm -hmm. it's something that as you understand what audience research is, you know, researching your audience, it's not anything that's that's totally groundbreaking or new. It's just that people don't really have the shared terminology for that yet. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that we do at SparkToro is normalizing the phrasing, right? Like like normalizing what it means to do audience research or knowing when to do audience research instead of market research or how the mm -hmm. two can kind of coexist, right? So if I say anything like, I think, I think people should do more audience research and less market research, it doesn't mean that I think market research is bad. I don't think that. I think, I think what is, well, I think anybody would agree with is market research is expensive, right? It costs tens of thousands of dollars to run high quality surveys. It takes a lot of time and effort to run and parse the insights from focus groups, right? It's expensive work mm -hmm. and not everybody is in a position to be able to do that. And audience research is something that is a lot more accessible to more people and more people like of any uh, or any at, for any company at any stage of growth, right? Could be like if you're setting, looking to set out to start your own consultancy, you could do some audience research, right? So a lot of how we think about this is, so also when I say normalizing this conversation, I would add to that connecting the dots between audience research or the obscure topic and relatable examples. So how might you use audience research to pitch yourself to join someone else's podcast, right? Pitching yourself to join a podcast is a very relatable, very normal, common thing to do. But how can you use audience research to do it? So the way I would recommend it, for, ex for example, would be you know, looking for if you have if you have a following, right, it would be looking at the pot searching for the podcasts that are influential in your niche. Right. So maybe it is or influential to your audience. So you could make maybe then make the case to the podcast host like, hey, you know what? I have a, you know, I have a following and a lot of people who follow me engage with your podcast. I would love to join and we can talk about, you know, X, Y and Z. So connecting those dots, making that a lot more easier and relatable and providing just a lot of use cases for your obscure product or service. What do you what do you find? Or how do you approach when you're trying to explain this and especially introduce sort of, and I think I agree, everything you said makes complete sense to me and I think is, is really smart. What do you do when it feels like they're still not getting it, right? Like even if, you know, it's funny because a lot of times I say like, it's never, it's never the sort of buyer, the audience or the customer's fault if they don't understand, even if they should even if they're dumb, right? right? Like, even if they're dumb, it's not their job. It's my job to figure out a way to make them understand 
at least understand. They may not want it. It may not fit for them or whatever. But if there's confusion, that's my fault, my responsibility, not theirs, right? So how do you approach or what do you do if you're doing everything, quote unquote, right, but they're still not quite getting it or they're still kind of misunderstanding it? How do you, I guess in a way I'm asking, like, how do you troubleshoot when you're trying to explain something and your message isn't landing? Like, where do you start yeah. to figure out why not? Yeah. So if I, if I can, if I can interact directly with the customer, whether it is over email, in person, through a webinar, right? If I can have any kind of, any kind of one-to-one -one interaction, then I try to get the a sense of, of what is blocking them, right? Well, what is, what, what is it they're stumbling over, right? But, and the, the best or the main way I would approach that is, is by asking them, what is a problem that you've had? Like, what's a marketing mm -hmm. struggle you've recently had? It doesn't matter what it is, whether it is getting, trying to get executive buy-in on whatever project it is or campaign, or your campaign didn't, it just didn't land well with the audience. Then from there, I would try to troubleshoot that problem and figure out like, okay, here's where I think this went wrong, or here's what I think you could have done differently. And I think this would have been more effective in, you know, maybe, maybe if you got buy-in on, maybe your, you know, CEO didn't want, didn't want to fund the podcast that you wanted to launch, then maybe it would be, you know, make understanding the sources of influence or like digging into the, in my case, digging into the SparkToro tool and then trying to connect the dots between podcasting and the business case for mm -hmm. it, which is kind of the language that a CEO in this fake example would right. understand. So I guess it's really just trying to be empathetic to all of the stakeholders involved and figuring out how to get on their level and understand, meet them and really meet them where they are. Yeah. And I'm guessing, I assume, like, at least this is what I have found in my experience is that, that getting specific and sort of zooming in, right. It's so much easier almost to understand a specific use case, a specific case study, a very like small micro thing of this is how I, you know, this is let's, and you sort of explained it when you were talking about before, like, this is the goal that you have. This is how you could use this product specifically for that. And I feel like it's easier for people to understand and extrapolate from there than I think a lot of times people get stuck in the big, broad, you know, oh, we have this tool that does X, Y, and Z and can do a million different things. And I think it's tougher to understand broad than it is narrow and specific. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So... Uh, that all makes sense. And I think it's hopefully really helpful for people in terms of figuring out, again, it is something I think lots of people struggle with and, and hopefully that can point them in the right track to, to explain things. The next thing I wanted to talk about, and this is going to be a little, I've got a bit of a challenge for you. So, so we'll see. One of the, one of the things that you and I have in common, it's funny, as I was, as I was researching you, we have more in common than I realized we both live in LA. Uh, we're both former journalists. And I personally think that my journalism background has been incredibly helpful to me, even though I don't work as a journalist now. I actually think it's one of the best backgrounds you can have to become a sort of creator, marketer, you know, whatever this thing is that we do. So what I want to do is let's give people a five-minute journalism degree. I want to know what key skills did you learn as a journalist that you can try to teach non-journalists who are listening right now to help them in the next few minutes or so. So where would you start with that? I really think 
the the best starting point is understanding primary sources in in everything that you read. And I think this is a huge I think this is a really big deal because it helps you to better understand the topic or yeah, the topic or the issue at hand. And you know, when I think back to my my journalism days, you know, if there was breaking news that we were going to cover, then we'd start our research with a primary source, right? Even if the first source that we saw was a different publication who broke the news, that doesn't also, I should say, by the way, that doesn't mean that they are the primary source. It means they were first. But I do think mm-hmm. it's important to go to that first because where did they get their news? Right? Well, how do they know that was breaking? If, if they were, if, if, you know, if there was breaking news and the journalist or publication who first wrote about it was on the ground at the scene when it happened, then that's a primary source, right? But if it's breaking news because they happen to be the first ones to grant the exclusive to the company who had an announcement, well, that's not a primary source because the company is the primary source. So they, they just chose that publication first. So I think even just understanding, maybe, that, maybe my answer is understanding the difference between mm-hmm. first and primary source. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can be the same. They won't always be. And then from there, you know, looking at the additional sources. So in this case, in this example of like a company breaking news, then the primary source is actually actually the company. So maybe they have their own official statement, whether it's a press release or a blog post that came from them specifically. I would start from there as my like foundational understanding of the issues. And then from there, go on to understand, okay, what what are the other publications writing about? How are they how are they covering this? And then you as the, you know, another competing publication, so to speak, what's your unique perspective on it, right? So in the case of breaking news in the tech space, maybe maybe TechCrunch is first to announce the funding, right? Maybe Ars Technica was next to talk about the implications in the legal and compliance spaces. Okay, that's their unique angle. And then if you as an incumbent are focused on, you know, the interesting ways in which founders are growing their companies, then maybe your angle is, well, what is the growth, growth marketing or acquisition strategy implication? Like, mm-hmm. how does this affect their path to growth? Right. There are a lot of different ways that you could see this as a creator and how you can kind of leverage best practices or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, journalism tactics to get better at your own creating. Yeah, it's it's interesting that it's interesting that that's where you went with it. And and one of the things that it made me think about is not only sort of the creating piece, but on the consumption side. Right. And I think that, you know, there are so many. There are so many people. Anyone can go out and write a blog post, do post a video telling you how to do something right. Here's how to grow your audience. Here's how to grow your business. Here's how to write a landing page. Here's how to sell more stuff. Here's how to, you know, do whatever. But to your primary, if you think about, if you, if you apply that primary source concept to that, it's interesting to look at that and go, well, are they sharing advice because they've actually done it and they're sharing what they actually did or they just read a bunch of people who said, here's what they did. And they're regurgitating that. Right. And it's an interesting thing to think about because you see so much of it 
in this sort of creator economy expert space. And I'm a big fan of curation. I think all of that is valuable, but it is interesting to consider when you're, when you're consuming advice from people, are they a primary source? Essentially meaning, have they actually done it, right? Are they telling me how they actually got a thousand subscribers or are they say, or are they just saying, this is in general how you do it, right? They're a secondary source in that version versus a primary source. And I think that's, I had never really thought about it in those sort of journalism terms. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's something to consider when people are sort of seeking out information in this flood of, of information out there of how to do things. Well, I want yep. to just add to that. Like, yeah, I, think, go ahead. I think there's a big piece in, you know, for any creator, I think there, it's really important to focus on your inputs or the way you take yeah. in information. And I think understanding how to take in high quality information is really important to how you as a creator can have better output. Yep. No, yeah. I, I completely agree. On the one on the on another side of sort of the journalism thing, let's in terms of writing, right? Because you're sort of talking about gathering of information, but in terms of how you learn to write. Is there anything that comes to mind that you would say to somebody that maybe doesn't have the background that you have of being a journalist? I, this is my own personal experience. I, you tell me if you agree or not, but it teaches you to write a certain way and teaches you to, I like, I hear from people all the time that my writing is very clear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a direct result of a journalism background. If I had studied creative writing or fiction or whatever, my guess is my writing style would be different, right? But I'm so just curious if there's anything that you've noticed that you sort of have picked up on or writing tips that you would give people, the things you learn as a journalist in terms of writing that other people might benefit from. Yeah. Well, for one, I definitely agree that your writing is very clear, right? And and by clear, right, this might still be kind of abstract to someone listening. Mm -hmm. Like what is clear? It's easy to skim, easy to understand. I think the other piece is using jargon strategically, right? I, mm -hmm. I think I actually think jargon can be a really good thing, right? Because if you're using the words correctly in an in, in a given industry or niche, then it's also kind of showing that the audience that you speak their language or that you're kind of on the inside of the community with them. So I mm -hmm. think using some of that, but not not you know using it too much to the point that your article or your essay is requires a lot of Googling on the side. Mm -hmm. But I think being okay. a little smart about that, I think even just things like, things even like removing adverbs, if you can, mm -hmm. that helps a lot. Reducing the amount of analogies, maybe. Like mm -hmm. if you have, right, in any given essay, which is what, maybe 800 to 1,000 words, we'll say, you know, I would say something like, you might need some analogies to help people connect the dots better, but don't go crazy with them. Like maybe stick with a couple and really let mm -hmm. them shine and really let those stand out on their own to enable people to understand the topic. But I think I agree that like, I think the journalism background really helps you with that clarity. It helps you focus mm -hmm. on the important parts or the concrete details of any given situation. And helping you to crystallize that in a way that the reader can instantly get. So it's hard, right? It's a, a lot of practice, a lot of writing drafts that are awful. <laughs> but okay. yeah, I think I think it helps. I think it also helps along the lines of what you were saying. 
it helps teach you how to write to be understood, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, I think a lot of times people are other types of writing, unlike journalism, right? Whether it's academic, whether it's quote unquote professional business writing, whether it's, you know, fiction or literature, their emphasis is not necessarily on being understood. Part of it, I think as a journalist, there's a strong emphasis, also a strong emphasis on understanding what you're trying to say. Like my guess is that when you sit down to write something, you have a pretty clear idea. I don't know to, and I guess, you know, to what extent you outline or not, but I'm guessing you go into it with a pretty clear sense of what you're trying to say. And I'm not sure that everybody does that. I think a lot of times people start with a sort of vague idea of what they want to say and the whole, I'll find it as I go kind kind of thing. Yeah. Is that, does that resonate with you? Is that true? It does. I I really love what you said about writing to, writing to be understood. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's a great, well, I love it because that's one way I think about it. But I think Mm -hmm. the other side to that is writing to make the reader feel seen. Because I think yeah. it's both. I think you want. I think you kind of want to hook somebody by making them feel seen or understood. But then you continue mm-hmm. writing so that you could be understood, like you, right. your message. It's like, yeah. Right. It's like you want to. You want. You want to write, and I'm a combined. That's actually a great point. It's like you want to write to be understood, and so that your readers, and to show that you understand your readers, or for your readers to felt understood. You want to be understood and you want them to feel understood. I yes, guess, exactly. Is, is another way to another way to put it. Great. Well, so thank you so much for doing this. Anything you want to plug any place? Where can people go besides Twitter or anything else you want to mention? I know you have a course. Where can people get more from you? Yeah. So I got a lot to plug here. Now, nice. I'll say we're SparkToro. You know, if you want to learn more about audience research, check us out at SparkToro.com. We have a couple of free tools. We also offer a free account so you can better understand your audience and the and their sources of influence. And then for me and my writing, I would say keep up with my my newsletter and my Twitter. You can find me at amandanet.com. Great. And for me, I will I will see your plugs and I will raise you several plugs. If anybody wants more of my nonsense, get, get my newsletter for theinterested.com slash subscribe. I offer a series of video workshops called Skill Sessions. Uh, you can get those at joshspector.com slash sessions. If you'd like to hire me, I do coaching calls and consulting. You can learn more about that at joshspector.com slash consulting. I am also on Twitter at jspector. And if you would like to be a guest on this podcast, you can go to joshspector.com slash questions and apply. Let me know the three questions you would want to ask me, and maybe we can make that happen. That's about it. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, everyone, for your interest. And I will see you next week. Bye-bye.